Welcome to the Who's Your Mob podcast. I'm having a bit of a chat with David Brady here, and this is a little bit different. I was having a bit of a chat with him about Carver, and we just happened to have the microphones on, so I start off the podcast a little bit off script, but then we kick into podcast proper, and I find out a bit about Papua New Guinea where he does a lot of work up there with the musicians through his music label and some other music collaborations and also have a bit of a chat to him about some other Aboriginal music collaborations that he has here uh, as a musician and as a manager of a record label. So it was a great chance just to finally have a long sit down and understand a bit more about his connection and what has brought him to work with the indigenous peoples of I guess you can say Australasia and he still manages to be a singer-songwriter in his own right and play in other bands and He's always got something on the go. He's got multiple projects on the go. So nice to be able to have a chat with him and understand more about his process, the work that he does, but then also these amazing places that I guess after talking to him and hearing how amazing they are, I might be a little bit closer to visiting. So here he is, David Brody. Because we're up in the islands, uh, yeah, didn't have any alcohol at all. They have carver up there. So they drink yeah. the carver a fair bit, and it's fantastic. You like it? Well, I do. Well, I like it. what's cultural, so you have it. Um, I like beetle nut in Papua New Guinea. You have it because you go to a village and. But the, it ha- so it happens at five o'clock every day, just between five and seven. Really? Every day? And you sit it. Well. They did it every day and they offered it. So, But you'd also have a shell of carver, a ceremonial one, on at the beginning and at the end of leaving. But it's like it's like having a joint without as much of the thought process stuff. So it was kind of... Um, but it really does chill you out. And so you go into a nakamal and so you have this shell of carver and it's a carver root, so it tastes like vegetable matter. Yeah, and soapy muddy water yeah it tastes like sort of celery and asparagus juice or something that's okay. been maybe sitting out for three days <laughs> um but you have the shell and they get this they got the red light for the nakamal, nakamal and it's all soft light and everybody speaks really softly there's all people often groups of twos and threes yeah and um people speak business you know like village politics and that, that's where kind of a lot of stuff gets done and uh, that's quite good it's quite uh and so it's very chilled. And because of that, there's a lot less drinking of alcohol. So Vanuatu is a lot less edgy than Papua New Guinea. Yeah, right. There's a lot of reasons. I mean, it's, it's more complex than that. But uh, Carver has a bit to do with it. And um, is it right across the islands in the yeah. Pacific? Well, no. If Vanuatu drinks Carver, New Caledonia, they drink Carver. Certainly must be part of it, some parts of the Solomons, but certainly not in Papua New Guinea at all. Yeah. I heard it was introduced into some parts of northern Australia yeah. as well. Just yeah, the Yongle mob, like they do with everything, 
they, it's been banned up there because they go it really hard. Yeah. Whereas at the Nakamai, you only do it between five and seven, and I'm sure there are people who go it too hard, but nobody overdoes it. Yeah. But Yongle Way, you know, you go, we go, we go, we go. Yeah. Um, but I hear uh, it also does things like makes your palms yellow. It has these, if you overdo uh, it, I think mm. it kind of dries out your skin and all that kind of stuff. But they say rubbing coconut oil. Min reckons it's really good because you know how there's this you know epidemic of fentanyl, you know, like um, prescription opioids, basically for you know people with this you know current you know the you know mental health issues and anxiety or wanting to and kava tablets are really good for and a very safe way to, to take you know if people got difficulty sleeping mm. min, min says kava tablets yep uh, if you got them for me once you, you can get them you can get them here and having one or two kava tablets if you have if i'm having sort of difficulty sleeping it's really good yeah no it's not like it's not like taking a sleeping pill or anything but it's just yeah it's um Anyway, that's another discussion, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, okay. Can you see yourself incorporating it into your um, routine here? Yeah, no, I always have a, I have a bottle of carbon tablets there that sometimes when, if at night, if I wake up and I'm just... Because my mind goes, you know, just, you know, being able to slow my thinking or stop excessive thinking process in the middle of the night is something I've always had a, um, a problem with. I think Carver's kind of good for that. It's kind okay. of good for just going, okay. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't have side effects. I mean, if you have two, if you have, you know, if you wake up at 3.30 in the morning and you have a couple of Carver tablets to try to get back to sleep, you get back to sleep and you probably sleep an hour and a half longer than you would have normally. Yeah. So if that's a side effect but all right yeah. yeah i guess i like the idea of the tablets uh the only time i've had it has been in that um i think it's like form. a, a yeah, powder well the, oh, the powder, powder that that then i guess you brought up and it doesn't have the nicest taste i'm sure there it tastes a lot better they probably find ways to you know, put a squeeze of lime in it or is it just straight up yeah is it probably even stronger taste it's not a bad taste it just tastes like it tastes like vegetable matter, and and, um, and you get the numbing, that whole numbing yeah, a of your bit of tongue and your yeah, throat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's not. It's different than the. Yeah, it's out of carver root, and they chop it up, and then they put it through a mincer, and then they kind of soak it all in. Yeah, yeah. It's quite quite the processing. So there's no. Is there an equivalent in PNG like a sort of no, well psychoactive? Have, no, they have betel nut buo, which is which is kind of the opposite. It's a little bit of an upper. And it, but it doesn't last so long. You kind of have it. People have a bit better on it, like cigarettes, kind of. All right, and it's just chewing it. Yeah, mm. is that the one that kind of goes red and? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think I saw a bit of that through India. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they, um, yeah, they, they do it full on in Pedro. Yeah. 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 So I think I'll probably leave the carver conversation in but normally what I do with the podcast is uh, after the introduction then I ask who's your mob okay. my father's side is from Dundee in Scotland and my mother's side is from Cardiff in Wales um, I'm sure there are other permutations in around that but that's kind of uh, 
my mother's family are Matthews and Smiths, and they're very Welsh names. Bridie is, um, uh, yeah, Scottish from the east, yeah, east, just north of Edinburgh. Okay, but you were born and raised in Australia? Born and raised, born in Sydney, lived in Melbourne all my Yep. And, yeah, then uh, I guess you, you will then, you know, call yourself Australian, um, yeah, pretty much. Yep. Yeah, Australian of, uh, yeah, of uh, Scottish heritage with this, you know, um, big link to PNG, I guess, to, to rebel anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so, you know, I guess as far as, you know, Melbourne's your home, you know, mm. we're born in Sydney being there, but yeah, also having strong connections to other parts of the, well, other parts of the country and other parts of the world. So yeah, like and it's so, an interesting so, one. Yeah, it's an interesting. Uh, I think uh, the older I get, the more I am interested in uh, the Scottish take on things. There's a very Scottish uh, search for um, a lot of the first convicts to Australia were Scottish um, libertarians who were, you know, fighting for universal suffrage and and, that, and they got sent out here for you know. Um, uh, I like that side of the Scots. I like uh, um, that link to social justice that a lot of Scots have, so that's kind of, that's an interesting uh, uh, take. Um, also, because uh, all the work that you do up in PNG with the music there, mm -hmm. um, I guess you would be somewhat ad adopted by the, the local community in a way. So. Yeah, how, how does that work? How does that uh, come to be? Well, we did... Um, it was the first country I went to <coughs> outside of Australia. Um, and it's a fascinating country and it gripped me from the moment I went there. It's very different from um, uh, certainly urban life on the southeastern seaboard of Australia. Um, How long ago was this? When I was 24, so 1986. Okay. Um, and I did an eight-week trip around a whole lot of different parts with some friends. And, um, yeah, it uh, threw me out of my comfort zone. Um, um, so of course, at that age, you've got your, your antennas are up anyway. You're sort of seeking out... Um, so I was post-uni, two years into Not Drowning Waving as a band. We'd started when I was 20 in 1983, so three years into Not Drowning Waving. So, um, um, and um, so culturally, musically, it's a gobsmackingly gorgeous country, but it's very, very different from Australia because it's a very young country geographically. So there's lots of, you know, um, you know, mountains that appear out of nowhere and volcanic action happening and hot springs and uh, um, uh, landslides and earth, sh earth shudders, gurias, earthquakes and, um, um, and uh, there it was, so that was, in, that was 10 years after they'd got independence was when I was first there. So it was a young country finding yep. its way. Um, uh, Port Moresby being a town, but the rest of the pl the rest of the country is very village-based. Yeah. Um, so what took you over there? It's not necessarily a destination you hear too many people like 
going overseas or going on a holiday would uh, choose? Well, it's our closest neighbour. Mm. Um, in fact, from Saibai Island, where Christina Nui's from, uh, it's five kilometres to Papua New Guinea. At low low tide, you can wade across, and people do. Yeah, right. Um, in fact, and the dances and the songs of uh, those Boigu and Saibai are the same as from that uh, those uh, villages on the coast and at the delta of the Fly River down in the western province of PNG. So they're one mob. Mm. Um, so there's a real connection there for Australia. Um, but there, look, there was a, a, a guy named Mark Worth who, who he, with Not Drowning Waving, we used to project films whilst we played. Um, Super 8, 16 mil. And Mark would set up these projectors. He was a filmmaker set up the Super 8 Club at Swinburne Uni here. Um, uh, but Mark's father was in the Navy and he spent the first uh, uh, 15 years of his life on Manus Island at Lombrum, which is the naval, naval base there, which in more recent times is the, you know, the awful prison camp that we're sending, you know, Kurdish and Rohingya and um, uh, Tamil uh, refugees to, uh, but Mark used to regale. It was a great raconteur, Mark. He's, uh, but and he um, uh, he used to regale me with stories about growing up in Papua New Guinea and about this amazing history of the Pacific. That you know the um, uh, the pre-independence movements of the Metalman Association and the Palio movement on Manus where um, leaders were trying to get people in in, the, in their areas to turn their back on Western ways and um, go back to their custom and that uh, kick out the colonial leaders and you know push back against the church and um, um, try to make sense of the world through this, you know, uh, the prison that they had, which was perhaps an isolated one, because Menace is quite remote. Um, you know, the effects of, uh, oh, look, so many stories, James. It was, uh, mm. You know, the Second World War, Menace had a whole lot of American soldiers there, and, um, um, and so Menace Islanders would see... Uh, uh, white American soldiers and African American soldiers sitting side by side playing music, mm. and whilst I'm sure if you, uh, you know, from the African American experience, they would tell you that you know when they went back to America at the end of the Second World War, they were certainly second-class citizens and all that kind of thing. To Papua New Guineans, that they were sitting side by side with, uh, you know, these white fellows playing music, that would, that sowed the seed of independence going, well, mm. why can't we do that? And it also sowed the seed of string band music and some musical styles that came out. Um, um, uh, so there's that story, one quarter of the world's languages in Papua New Guinea. That's amazing. Um, the highlands of Papua New Guinea was not really, dis you know, it was kind of opened up in the 1930s, 1940s, so there was, you know, a bit over a million people that were discovered there that had never... Um, um, and so that's just due to the uh, to the landscape and I guess how isolated people would be from 
just just couldn't travel like the distances that we do here. Yes, yeah, yes. So that 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 mountain that those mountains do you know they rise out of nowhere and they're very steep and um, it's difficult terrain to, to travel. Well, probably a little bit also due to PNG was divided in there isn't it's Papua and New Guinea. Papua was a British colony, the southern part, and New Guinea, the northern part, was a German colony up until the First World War. After the First World War, it became an Australian colony, Australia's only colony. Um, uh, and the Highlands were in the middle there, so that um, um, uh, yeah, so that's a, I, in 1986 when I first went there, you'd meet people who for the 20, first 20 years of their life had lived without any knowledge of the outside world, so they'd lived a, a complete tribal life, their own custom, their own spirit, their own laws, their own uh, self-sufficiency food-wise. Um, and so they've gone through the whole of the Industrial Revolution in, you know, the um, yeah. 40, 40 years. It's phenomenal. So I guess these tribes up in the highlands, mm. uh, the cultures as diverse as the languages, or do, do they have very sim similar value sets and customs? Highland is a very Highland is quite unique to people, the coastal people. Um, coastal people all through Melanesia are quite uh, have a lot in common. Um, I mean, there's Melane there's a Melanesian approach to things that kind of does unify, including the Highlanders, but. Highland life is very different from um, coastal areas. Custom-wise, uh, there are there are a lot more. There's a lot more tribal warfare going up the top. Although not that still applies on the coast as well. Um, um, coastal people probably had more. Even if that was, it was just their own village life there would have been whether it, people coming through from um, you know the Moluccans or people from Asia may have sailed through so there was, there was some um, contact with uh, a broader world so it might, um, uh, and that reflected in their uh, way of life uh, look, look, and all these things are difficult to talk about as generalisations because um, you know, you listen to some music fr uh, um, from different areas and they're quite unique from each other, but they might also have similar things in terms of their diet and um, um, uh, their approach to land and uh, family. It's one thing that Melanesia has in common with um, Indigenous Australia is the, the, the family and land and um, uh, the spiritual beliefs that they have. I think there's, mm. a, there's common ground. Um, so, so what about traditional instrumentation? Um, the voice is the principal one. Um, and. Uh, the songs are haunting and guttural and beautiful and textual and um, s surging and there are some the solo melodies that are 
and they also sing their law and they um, uh, but also sing oral history sing stories um, and then there's a lot of songs that you can't separate from dance um, they in different areas, in most areas there are some forms of drums, whether it be the kundu drum, which is kind of an hourglass that's got the uh, monitor lizard um, that can be danced with or, or, or played, so that's like, uh, to anyone who hadn't seen it, it would be like a conga drum or of sorts, or a, mm. or a djembo or something. Um, and uh, and these garamut drums too, these big log drums, can be two meters long, can be one meter long, can be smaller ones. Uh, um, Similar to the um, uh, Cook Islands. The or, uh, Cook Island pates are a lot smaller, mm. although there's some uh, big ones. They use them in Vanuatu as well. They're called tam tams there. The Manus Island, uh, where we went to in that first trip, there, so that they use. Um, they have ensemble polyryth polyrhythmic garamut drumming, uh, slit, slit log drumming, called garamut drumming, um, which is unique. That's amazing. Um, although I just heard some recently in Vanuatu as well. That's kind of similar. Lots of this flutes, bamboo flutes um, of different uh, 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 persuasions. Uh, Pius Fossi, one of the Wantok artists, is um, uh, a marvelous flute player. Um, Do they have a similar sense of scales and uh, harmony? Well, different areas, yeah. The, so in Bougainville, they'll they play the, this things that, that are like um, pamphlet. They play this cower, cower, which is like big pan pipes. So that we go, so this surging big kind of notes. And they also play smaller ones, which look like what you know you'd find in uh, South America, except they play it in a very different kind of way. So there's pan flutes, but there's also um, uh, more Haunt Highlanders play this Quakumba style, which is like this open notes. Uh, that kind of, uh, and they do these calls across valleys with it. And, um, uh, but it can also be quite, quite percussive in the way they play it. Um, and are the intervals recognisable to your Western ears? Yeah, to, um, yeah. Look, there's some places where you, they go in, in between what you'd. Uh, uh, but the, the traditional melodies tend to be these kind of haunting minor key melodies. Um, um, and different areas you recognise. Uh, um, Things and there's certainly, um, um, yeah, so that, that would be the traditional music that's like that. And, and there's some variations of percussions, percussion things. Uh, they also play these, you know, sort of um, uh, juice harp kind of things, juice harp they call it, um, you know, using, you know, bones and a kind of a bamboo, a thin, they kind of get that. And it gets these kind of, you know, harmonic notes. The melody kind of comes in the harmonics, which is fantastic. Yes, it's all, and, you know, with and the music, and the more you go to PNC, the more you hear a song and you recognise where it's from a little bit. 
And then you throw in all the hybrid things that came out of, you know, string band music that came out of those, you know, out of the war and some of the, the church music that came out of the Tongan and Samoan missionaries who were the first in the late 19th century. Okay. Um, um, so these choral traditions and... Um, um, Papua New Guinea, in, in Papua New Guinea culture, there's a whole lot of examples of an idea of something being brought in, and then the Papua New Guineans just ran with it. So they come up with a style of, um, and that's in music, and that's in um, drama, surfing. It's stories about a you know a surfboard being left with some 13 year old kid who'd watched these Australian guys surfing for a while and uh, Mark Worth told me that he went back five years later and this kid had just developed this style of surfing based on what he, so he watched, watched Australian mm. guys there but he, and um, uh, because they're so physically confident, especially on the reefs and on water, he, he, Mark's, Mark used to say that this, uh, he did amazing stuff that, yeah, he took, <laughs> It was sort of a really idiosyncratic approach to surfing, uh, and I think that applies in a whole lot of categories mm. as well. And I guess at the moment I remember you saying that reggae seems to be a big thing on the island. Yeah. Uh, does some of the traditional sound come into the reggae at all? Uh, anything identifiable? Or, um. or, or what might make their reggae unique uniquely PNG they play an island style of reggae and that that's in Vanuatu and the Solomons as well probably Fiji as well um, uh, but yeah the, there's reggae that filters through string bands so string bands acoustic guitar and ukulele and harmonies so it goes in there um, so sorry when you say string band well, so string band is like um, each village used to have String bands is sort of less prominent now. They're still there. So the string bands are all bamboo bands, um, and they uh, so you'd have six, six or seven people that sit around, mostly acoustic guitars with one ukulele, and they would sing in three or four part harmony. And there's all these kind of hybrid styles of string band music. Um, uh, so it's kind of their folk music, really. Yeah. Um, so that, like, the harmonies would have come from church. Yes, was yeah. where it's sort of based from, and then you know from uh, hearing, you know, songs in the, uh, you know, the sixties and seventies and fifties on radio, and then they've taken it and you know, run with it. So you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a really Pacific Island sound, and it's um, um, and the lyrics will all yeah they'll tell stories that are uh, wonderful, and you can you can each region has its own kind of string band style. And in fact, in Rabaul, there's these islands, the Duke of York Islands, that are ten ten miles off Cockerfarce, so they're not that far away, and their style of string band music is totally different from. Um, uh, really high vocals and quite staccato playing and stuff. Whereas the Tolai, the Gunantuna, the people of Rabaul, their string band styles a lot. They're sort of like it's kind of fast and pacey and rocky. And um, the Manus Island style is really cruisy. Uh, Motuans around Port Moresby just have these harmonies to die. You know this kind of 
much more that sort of classic Pacific Island swaying kind of harmonies and they slide off notes beautifully. Um, um, and what place would these bands have? Would they only play in their community or would they tour around other villages? And String bands wouldn't tour so much, although a few did. A few did. The Paramount Strangers were a really big band and they... Um, so the, each area has used to have, and they're coming back now, they're sort of cultural festivals or gatherings or where mob would come in and, you know, dance off and play songs and feed, you know, feed and eat. And uh, it's always food involved in being It's big. Uh, and I'm sure big talk, you know, important conversations would be had between leaders and... Um, so and that would uh and string bands would go to that um um oh look and again i was never talking about it's it's such a such a complex country it's eight eight and a half million people it's twice as many people as new zealand um, yeah right it's it's and it's growing at such a fast rate it's um changing at such a fast rate uh, but it's a dynamic, independent, you know, black man's country right on our, uh, right on our doorstep. And yeah. so, is it safe enough to travel around these days? If you know people wanted to, I don't know, go for a bit of an adventurous holiday, you could um, get around without uh, too much trouble. Because I hear, you know, Port Moresby's quite difficult Port Moresby is a lot better now than it used to be um, again a complex issue yeah look I've I mean I've, I've come and gone 40 you know between 40 and 50 times since that first trip in 1986 and spent a lot of time up there and have you know avoided any um, any difficulties uh, there is crime because it's a poor country especially in Port Moresby because um, everywhere else whilst it's poor people have their own land and if you have your own land you have your own value and you also have gardens so you have food mm. um, and you have uh, you know, uncles and aunties who are looking out for you and giving you a clip behind the ears if you muck up and all that. Whereas in Port Moresby, it's a lot, a whole lot of different tribal groups thrown in there. It's expensive. You don't, oh, many people don't have lands. Probably a bit drier than other areas too. So access to water, which is always really important for health and for you know living, that's a bit more difficult. Um, um, and there's greater discrepancy because so more wealth on display as, as well as more poverty on display in Port Moresby. Um, uh, but, I mean, people, in the, you know, the 8 million Papua New Guineans get around and they deal with stuff, so outsiders can too. It's a place that, uh, and, and for all the, I mean, you're careful, you don't sort of, you know, not a place that you walk around, anywhere that's where people are poor, you don't walk around with, you know, gold chains, you know, your wallet hanging out of your back pocket or, or you know, ostentatiously flashing money around. Um, 
And Papua New Guinea is a very generous and very hospitable as a generalisation. So as with anywhere, if you go to a place and once you get to know some people and common sense prevails and they'll look after you, you know, and um, they're very generous. People are very generous with their uh, time and they're um, uh, quite giving. And so I would recommend, I would really recommend to anyone, if you could, uh, uh, to people with a sort of a sense of adventure about them to go up there. If you're into music, if you're into um, um, uh, the natural world, you know, bird life, butterflies, um, if you're into geography, it's astonishing that way. If you're into sport, it's interesting, really interesting. I mean, the, the fascination that Papua New Guineans have with rugby league um, is a great documentary in the making. Mm -hmm. To be up in Papua New Guinea when a state of origin on is on is unlike anything in the whole world. Um, uh, Theatre and dance, um, or dance, in, in the, the, the traditional dance is... Um, uh, and their sense of decoration and artistry in the way that they dress and paint themselves up for ceremony is, um, is renowned. You know, carvings and the Sepik River. Um, uh, history. It's, you know, the history and, you know, the first Australian who got killed in the First World War, first Australian to die in the First World War was in Rabaul at the Battle of Bitterparker. Um, the Second World War history in, in PNG is um, yeah, astonishing, mind-blowing. Um, the, you know, the <coughs> Kiaps who opened up the Highlands, there, you know, this confrontation between um, uh, you know, the world wanting to uh, you know, confronting a million people who hadn't, um, you know, it's quite rare in history that you would, you know, that at one time you would find that many people who hadn't engaged with the uh, world. So, yeah. Mm. Um, um, yeah, it's life in the raw. It's um, Fascinating. And I also think it's a really fascinating place. The connection between Indigenous Australia and Papua New Guinea, I think, is one that uh, is underutilised in some ways. Mm -hmm. I think uh, being so close and there's such common ground. Um, I know in the like in the sixties, uh, if you speak to the you know the. Uh, Gary Foley's of the world, they say that at that time of student politics, there was lots, lots of getting together between, you know, the Papua New Guinea student leaders and the Aboriginal student leaders and Maori student leaders in New Zealand, and, and there was this kind of regional um, exchange of ideas. And, you know, at, at that time of this social change in PNG leading up to independence in Australia through the, you know, the... Um, the 60s, even though in Australia the 1960s weren't like, it was really the 1970s where that sort of social change started to happen more in Australia. New Zealand in the same way in the lead up to um, uh, the push of uh, land rights over New Zealand and the Treaty of Waitangi and, and making that 
uh, the full implications of that. Um, but since then, it hasn't been. It hasn't been as much mm. of that. Um, yeah. But, well, then, how how did you come to be involved so closely with the uh, the local people and well, especially the music? Um, happenstance, really, James. It's kind of um. um so on that first trip, I met George Tellick because I was in Rebel for a while, and, and how? Uh, so you were twenty-four. Yeah. How old would he have been? George is twenty-six. Okay. Twenty-six, twenty-seven, maybe. Um, and there was a that just his string band had just released this cassette. Uh, the Mob string band cassette had a hammerhead shark on the front cover, and the. Uh, side A track one was this track called A Bibi about a butterfly spirit and I would hear it on the buses all the time the buses being you know a, a, you know a 12 seater van with decorations and speakers that were always slightly distorted um, that would go along the um, the road from Cockerford round to Rabaul around this big, I mean, Rebel's set in the caldera of a volcano um, and has all these smaller volcanoes on the inside. The, um, so it's quite a dramatic landscape and beautiful, really beautiful. And this song really grabbed me and then I went into um, uh, the store, the Pacific Gold Studios out the front, they had, they sold all their cassettes because it was all cassettes in those days. And, um, I bought, I asked for that, you know, for that cassette because I'd heard it, I think I'd heard it three or four times and the kind of really, it really, really grabbed me. And, um, um, and they said, oh, uh, yeah, the, um, this, I, I spoke to, yeah, Glenn Lowe and Greg Cedar who were there and Greg ran the, Greg Cedar ran the studio and Glenn Lowe, was a musician who was also an engineer and, and they, they were there and I got, got talking to them and and they said to come along to this uh, barbecue the following night at Pillar Pillar uh, and George was going to be there and you know if we, you know you're a music you know talking about music and said oh, it's a musician back here and blah 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 um, and yeah the next night you know eating chicken and drinking beer on the beach and talking and having a bit of a jam and uh, and then hanging out with George a bit more after that, and um, yeah, just that common ground that you have as musicians got going. And uh, I think they were keen for outside musicians to come to Rebel to record. And oh, yeah. I think Not Drowning Waving were keen as a band to kind of chase any adventures that were ongoing, and that we sort of. Um, we went back in 1988 to record the Tabaran record um, uh, and spent two months there just jamming and working up a whole lot of things. So. Yep. So forgive my ignorance, but I guess they speak English there um, pretty well or what, what's... Okay, so they, they, yeah, they speak their own language first, obviously, which is called Topless. Um, and there are, in Papua New Guinea, 870 different talk places, different languages, not dialects, languages. So, mm. um, um, 
And this high density of languages uh, is common throughout the whole of Papua New Guinea, through the Solomons, through Vanuatu, through New, New Caledonia, Fiji, and in West Papua as well. As well, it's um, so yes. If you're a linguist, go to Melanesia as well. Cause yeah. um, and then they speak. So because of because of all these different languages, they speak Tokpisin as well, which is a bit like the Bislama that they would speak on the Torres Strait or in Vanuatu or even in the even in, in the top end of Australia. Um, so Tokpisin is a you know a hybrid form a pidgin English that is designed so that everyone so people could communicate with each other and so that the colonial government could commu communicate with the uh, indigenous people as well so that's um, so that's the way that's the easiest way to mm. um, uh, that everyone communicates yeah um, or people from different language groups communicate yeah and I guess their string band is it is it uh, considered traditional music or is it just like uh, their contemporary music and string band's contemporary string band's yep. yeah hybrid form um, you you there'll be some example a, a little bit tinges of traditional melody and um, um, you know, might grab. You know, there might be kundus or little garamuts to play along with it as well. So there'll be traditional elements in there, but that's more of a. Um, it's like a music influenced by country and rock and church harmonies. That's like that kid on the surfboard. They just took it and ran with it and mm. made something of their own about out of it. So, is there a, like this uh, gradual? Um, grey area from say the purely traditional music all the way to the contemporary or is there more of this you know hard line between what people are willing to do in ceremonial situation as as opposed to casual there are really prominent examples of artists who have merged forms um, there was a band called Sanguma in the 70s and 80s I came out of the art school in Port Moresby the music school in Port Moresby who were renowned for blending traditional musics with uh, uh, jazz and rock and with, so they would meld contemporary in, in, instruments with uh, traditional ones they toured out in Australia a couple of times too um, led by this wonderful musician named Tony Subam, who was on the board of the One Talk Music Foundation for a while. Um, uh, he's sadly passed away now. Um, so there's that side of things. And then you would have artists like uh, Telek and Paddy Doy and um, Barake, who would uh, use some elements of traditional music and blend it with with rock music um, uh, and certainly Telex developed a style that an artist like Telex, Ira Lecky would be another one um, who have uh, Sumbra Ikit would be a, an example of a young band that's doing that are you know blending traditional musics with 
contemporary um, instrumentation. Um, if your question is, is whether you know whether it's blocked, um, it's not completely blocked. Though traditional, you know, ceremony is for certain occasions, and that's where traditional music is mostly heard and played and devised. Um, uh, the idea of an artist grabbing the traditional music of his mob and performing it for other people is something that's only been, it's probably since the 1960s, so in history it's relatively recent. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, Papua New Guinea is a very, very dynamic country where you know, the language is constantly changing, the art is constantly changing, the, you know, um, uh. Yeah, and then with you coming in to, I guess, be inspired by Telex Sound, mm. uh, when you got into the studio, what did you bring to Telex and... and um, so George and I, the, the common thing that George and I had is being both musicians, both children's um, George is probably more of a rock musician than um, um, than I was. The early Not Joining Waving Records were more, you know, <coughs> you know ambience and atmospheres under over rhythm layers and stuff. But we kind of uh, and George was, you know, he's, he's been pine and walk with this, you know, quite uh, this great rock band. Um, um, but we had the studio, so the studio experience was in common. Life as a musician was in common, you know, you do gigs. Um, um, George was fascinated with the idea of working outside of Papua New Guinea, working inside of PNG, and, and, and you know, I think um, and we had conversations about, you know, saying that, well, look, you know, rock, rock music and reggae from PNG is probably not going to fly outside of PNG because there is, you know, the competition so vast, um, you know, uh, uh, certainly with reggae it's also, you know, the, the technology of the studio is very much at play in the sound that reggae gets. Um, George was quite keen to kind of say, okay, well, look, you know, um, and I agreed. We both that that what is unique to George is his is his uh, Tolai or Gunantana roots. His you know the, the, his the traditional rebel music, um, the music of the uh, the Tubuan, those kind of melodies, those kind of songs. Um, plus some string band stuff in there, um, and plus uh, um, and George is a songwriter as well. So that was you know those records had a bit of all of those things. Um, still a few rock songs all the time, and a, a few. Uh, George is a great singer songwriter based around on a guitar. You know he. Um, um, uh, 
but he wanted to tell a story of PNG, and uh, I was able to give him access to, okay, well, how about, you know, so probably facilitate the idea of being able to come and play over at, you know, WOMAD festivals here, or, and then we went and did a record at Peter Gabriel's studio in England uh, and got on that sort of the WOMAD the circuit. Um, there, um, and, you know, he's got to meet a whole lot of other, you know, the inverted commas world music scene artists. Um, you know, if I had actually in Kev Carmody playing on his first record, which was, you know, um, I think a blast for all of them. Uh, and, you know, he also was able to do all his work in PNG and then for a couple of months a year come down to a Australia and maybe for a month every year go and travel overseas and become part of his working musician's uh, schedule, but also broadened his, you know, probably been one of the um, strongest ambassadors for, of getting past that view that PNG is just this place full of corruption and, you know, dysfunctional crime gangs and all that kind of thing. George paints uh, a strong cultural picture of PNG, of the, of the beauty of grassroots life and um, both in his songs and his film clips and his, you know, some of the visuals that would be projected at his shows. Mm. And then with him coming into Australia and travelling around the world, uh, is there a certain balance of, uh, well, I guess, you know, thinking about the world music scene, is a certain balance of familiar is to Western ears, uh, like a harmony and uh, melody and structure, and the uh, I guess exoticness of another culture such as you know PNG and their their own style, that seems to um, yeah just be, be this happy happy medium which will kind of um, you know get the get the spots at WOMAD and, and be able to sell records and, and such? Oh, look, that's always balanced by the fact that Pink is a very expensive country to fly to. For, for me to fly from Melbourne to Rabaul is more expensive than to fly to London. So that always, that makes that side of it a little bit difficult. I, I think... Um, Um, yeah, it's, I don't think it's the easiest part, um, and certainly, um, now yeah. what, what, how do you know when you, when you're producing mm. that you are, I guess, you know, making something that is, is going to be, um, uh, appealing to, you know, audiences as to, you know, as to striking that. That balance. Can't go with your gut reaction, gut um, uh, feelings. Was this sort of something that uh, uh, George and I would hit on? And, you know, I've always thought that he was a great artist, so you can't, you know, certain some things work better than others, and it's often you don't find out until after the record comes out or. Um, uh, um, uh, yeah, so it's a lot of, exp- lot of you know, trial and error. 
uh, um, you know, it's an interesting question. Yeah, it's sort of. Um, 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 and so, how's the process with? Uh, I, I guess working with um, maybe not only PNG mob, but also. I guess you might, you know, find, you know, working with uh, Aboriginal mob uh, who might not necessarily be, you know, accustomed to the, you know, pace of the city and certain de uh, deadlines. And mm. uh, I could imagine that, um, you know, that they're very, you know, specific, um, uh, you know, time and financial restrictions that you would have with uh, one talk in regards to uh, you know, producing a, a record or a concert. Yeah, so how do you, um, you know, then as a producer of, of the live and the recorded, be able to keep everyone happy? Uh, you listen a lot. You kind of get used to it after a while too. Musicians, you know, black or white are kind of not great time, you know, the timing in songs is fantastic, but the timing at turning up to rehearsals and other gigs is different. So there's actually common ground there between um, people always talk about, you know, Melanesian time or Blackfella time, and it's kind of like, well, it's musicians' time, really. Um, uh, having said that, an artist like George, George is about one of the more most reliable kind of, you know, he's good at getting the things on. Uh, uh, time financially, it it stretches it, but look, there's something fascinating about the uh, adventure uh, for me, and also the personalities and the friendship friendships that are made. So you kind of get past the. Um, so there are a few things that might be more st from the outside that seem that that would be a slightly difficult, a more difficult path to take, and. Um, um, uh, The it's a it's a fascinating path, and um, you you know the collaborative side of it is kind of what makes it all worthwhile. It's sort of um, you know with all the one talk records I've been involved with, there hasn't there's very rarely a time where you think. This isn't a worth this isn't a worthwhile project. The 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 value both culturally and artistically and the fun you have make, making it um, um, is a really positive thing, and then it really does help to drive. And the, the stories they're they're really decent, really important stories that are worth telling, and I think that's. I mean, don't you find that that's a bit of a key to all art, isn't it? It kind of um, there's value in the um, what the songs are about, in the dances, in you know George going grabbing a story from his uncle or from his auntie, and the story in itself, and the relationship that George has with them, and the way that we try to make it work in the studio to kind of keep some of that. Uh, that's um, it's intriguing. It uh, keeps you on your toes, but you're always you're, and you're always wanting to um, 
be true to it. Um, and so whenever there, there are those frustrations and you know, financially it can be really uh, frustrating even working with someone like Frank when he's, uh, Frank's at Ernabella at the moment um, and needs to get back and that's not, you know, that's not forking out 200 bucks. That's, you know, coming up with, you know, uh, those things are more difficult than what it would be elsewhere. But if you look at the the positives out of, you know, Frank's great voice and those songs that he grabs from the earth and just, you know, shakes, you know, shudders the shoulders whilst he's making it, um, um, still inspires me and, um, uh, you know, still, uh, as a musical pursuit, I, I never doubt that it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And then as, you know, a non-Aboriginal person or, you know, I guess, white fellow in PNG, mm-hmm. yep. uh, do you find that you you have to overcome uh, extra hurdles or does it feel any different um being being non-indigenous um in some areas certainly um in rebel not so i've been sort of accepted there and um been through a whole lot of um um because I'd worked with George for such a long time, his uncles kind of, you know, um, put me through initiation there, which was a real honor and, um, uh, uh, but also has allowed the work that we've done since, since then, since, you know, um, so it was probably eight years ago. So that sort of opened up a lot of, um, uh, things there, but yeah, look, there are, um, you know, you, you all, um, I feel more comfortable working in Rebel with Tolo musicians than in other areas because I know the story a bit more, there's, we're further down the road than in, in other areas where I'm, um, in some ways, you're just trying to be a facilitator in some ways. Um, 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 I mean, um, and there's a point where yeah, it's musicians trying to um, Yeah, well, I guess in regards to, say, being a facilitator, because you would have your own musical ideas mm, and yep. and instincts and experience to know what works and what doesn't, and then to, I guess, facilitate something in, in their, um, uh, you know, th- their voice, then, yeah, do, do you find you have to, to hold back from your own... Um, um, your know, ideas to to let that facilitation you know, come through, as opposed to 
just going with your oh, with your instinct definitely but you know I look I also do you know I also have my own solo records and I do other work that's not in, involved there so that's and that's where I would go kind of full throttle and what's such kind of a David Brody artistic process um, and that would certainly be very different from uh, working on the Abitnatar project or producing a George Talek record or um, um, uh, yeah, so they're way more collaborative for a start, but also then there's the um, very conscious of what um, where I'm coming from, and also you kind of set things up they are going to be long lasting, so you kind of set something up that would work regardless of my involvement or not. Mm. Um, and look, every project has different personalities, and um, 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 uh, um, the. I mean, one talk works well as a conduit through which um, some people in artists can kind of get their music heard elsewhere, but it's certainly not the only way that um, um, uh, this can work. And there's, um, um, uh, so yeah, you're, you're kind of trying to be grounded in the way you go about it, being aware of all the uh, people involved, being, you know, listening, being sensitive to it, um, you know learning from mistakes like any um uh anyone does and you know we're you know a small label we work with probably you know 25 30 artists so that we're actually kind of you know uh puncture above our weight a little bit but um uh, there are uh, you'd like to i'd like to think there are other options elsewhere that don't involve this process so. mm. Well, I should let you go. Uh, you've got some recording to do in the studio. But, um, yeah, I was just going to uh, see if I can get an update on uh, how, how George is going. Uh, and, you know, I guess he's uh, you know, got the operation and the fundraiser coming up. Uh, was it Queen's birthday long weekend? Um, there's, uh, yes, there's, there's a show for him um, in... Well, there's one tonight in Brisbane. Uh, here's an example of the difficulty sometimes the trials and tribulations. So there's two benefit shows for George, one in the southern suburbs and the northern suburbs of Brisbane tonight. And the organisers, the Tolo, the women from Rabaul who are based in Brisbane have done this amazing job putting on these two shows. They've got this band down from, uh, a big band down from PNG to play, um, sold all these tickets and everything, and half the membership visas have been, haven't come through yet, the gig's tonight, so last I heard there was much gnashing of teeth. Um, uh, there was a benefit concert in Port Moresby at La Mana last week that was, a, that was fantastic, and raised a whole lot of money, and we've got, there's one in Melbourne that's happening on um, uh, Saturday, June the 8th, yeah, Saturday that weekend anyway. Yeah, Memo, yeah. at Memo, yeah. that Not Drowning Waving is reforming for. So this is kind of amazing. We haven't played a gig since 2006, really. So, um, uh, 
and um, um, the Underground Lovers are playing and Cooks is playing and Charlie Mamorosi is playing and a mob from Timor are playing and um, uh, so that's going to be a wonderful celebration of uh, uh, George's music and a, a great fundraising night and it's actually been interesting and quite life affirming actually for me just seeing how the music community and those people who George's music has affected have um, been quite uh, heartfelt in their response and um, uh, not just with financial donations but their um, uh, yeah their emotions and their, their thoughts and their, their, their care and their concern and um, um, uh, and George is getting better he's had these so he's had the the cancer's been removed from his mouth and the latest test showed no evidence that the cancer had remained. Um, obviously there'll be ongoing tests over a long period of time and he's had his mouth reconstructed because he had a tumour at the bottom of his um, lip. Um, so uh, George is doing mouth exercises as we speak, doing lots of AEIOUs and uh, um, and there's going to be a secondary bit of surgery, and uh, so he thinks. Yeah, so he's, he told me this morning he's going to be singing again, and he's looking forward to it. And he's also really overwhelmed by, um, quite uplifted by the response that people have, um, um, uh, uh, both in Australia and PNG have given. So that's yeah, it's kind of it's a it's one of those good uh, music industry stories, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Good news. Mm. Um, yeah, before I let you go, I'll just get a little bit of advice from everyone I talk to in regards mm. to, I guess, my own journey and, you know, finding that blend between the, uh, sounds of, uh, of two cultures coming mm -hmm. together. Yeah, any thoughts on, on what would be, um, worthwhile to, to keep in mind? When I blend, uh, if I'm working in a track that's blending uh, a, a traditional melody with um, contemporary instrumentation, I always try to minimise the contemporary oh, always. I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm questioning the word always, but I. I, I it works to let the traditional melody breathe and that sometimes that means playing less notes um, it sometimes means not playing a third in the chord so you're playing these fifths or these ninths or something so you're not uh, hammering down the the, the, chord, the the key that it's in yeah right um, um, and giving so that's one tip that's always kind of worked. And I, um, there's a groundedness and an earthiness about traditional songs and melodies that I think kind of um, 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 so I think that that works in the approach. So even if you're mi mixing electronica with um, uh, uh, traditional sounds, that earthy approach is a, a good one. 
as you know, James, it's like it's, it's, it's a lot about listening and respecting, and you know, where does a song come from, and what's the story, and what's your relationship with that person. And that determines how you. Um, How you go, how you go about it. I mean, the most important thing is that uh, uh, the mob who you're working with, you want them to not only like the song but to believe in the process. Mm -hmm. So five years down the track, you want those people to go, "Hey, oh, that was that was a really good, you know, that was a really respectful project. I love that song." Um, um, in some ways it's common sense but it's also that's the goal is to sort of um, you know when you're working on the song going okay in five years time what, what's this song going to be doing what's it going to represent or um, um, and it's not always easy to envisage where that's where that's going to go um, <laughs> the other thing is that you know culture is culture is dynamic it does keep changing so um, but being mindful of um, where people have come to come from to get to that collaboration so that's always that's listening and talking and conversation and spending time and um, uh, you're a person who always asks good questions, except for today. Today, there's been some of your worst. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you, you've, you, you've got a, 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 an inquisitive and a curious mind, um, and that I reckon will get you a long way in trying to, because it is listening and conversations and finding out what each side's wanting to get out of the project or what the story is behind the song or respecting the process, respecting where it's come from. And, uh, um, and yeah, you, and you learn by your mistakes, you know, because you do, everyone will make mistakes in the process. And yeah, you know, I looked at some of the, you know, we're not doing anyway, I was, I was 26 when we did Tavaran. And we approach it, and you know, there's some things now. I look at back and go, "Oh, that was so naive." Or, um, uh, but you know, people in Rebel love that record, and George, it's been really good for George. So I kind of look back and go, "Look, even though mistakes were made, that it, we all did the right thing. We all entered it in with a good heart." Um, um, and uh, music certainly is an area where this common ground can be found between different cultures and people from uh, different backgrounds, and it does it better than a lot of a lot of things because it is because music is so collaborative. And, um, 